Hey, guten Morgen. Ich bin ein Media Blitzen. Marika, wie geht's? Oh, oh das ist gut. Ja. Das ist ein, zwei. Eins, zwei, drei, fünf, vier, fünf, vier, vier, vier. It's it's five o'clock. Method man interview becoming super productive. Hmm. Okay, let's listen to some Jordan Peterson becoming super productive. How to become productive and overcome procrastination right now. All right. What does my average daily schedule consist of? Well, that's fairly straightforward. I get up around somewhere between 6 and 8, and then I work till 10, as, as hard as I can, flat out, every single day. So oh. I've been doing that for, with very little variation, although it's been much more extreme in the last year, for, like since 1985. Like I work probably... Well, I work, I would say, 14 hours a day, at least 14 hours a day, and so that's about 100 hours a week. And uh, the time that I don't do that, I spend with friends, and but mostly with my family. And so, um, yeah, and I work as efficiently as I possibly can. I'm always trying to do everything I can as fast as I possibly can. And I'm accustomed to that because, like I said, I've been doing it for, I've been doing it for 30 years, so... That's my daily schedule, and, and I don't know even what I would do if I didn't do that. Um, I, I have this cottage that I go to, although I generally spend time riding up there, and I go swimming with my wife, and we go canoeing, and, and I can take a break in that way, but most of the time, if I take a break even up at the cottage, generally what I do is like carpentry and fix the place up, and I don't like to be unoccupied. I have to be occupied doing something productive all the time, because otherwise I'm not pleased with myself and so and you know I decided a long time ago that I was going to try to live a hyper efficient and hyper productive life and so it's been a challenge I it's an enjoyable thing for me to some degree because I'm very interested in trying to figure out how much I can possibly do in the shortest period of time all the time and that keeps you alert and awake and it's a great challenge and it lends my life a substantial amount of meaning and it's it's been very successful so And that efficiency thing is really fun if you guys who are listening are out for a challenge. Like, one of the things that you can, I think this heightens the meaning in your life, is to try to do difficult things, right? Aim high. Don't aim so damn high you can't manage it. And make sure you break down your aims into reasonably attainable sub-goals. But you want to aim high. And then you want to see how hyper-efficient you can get. That's a great thing to do in your early 20s, is to see, okay, like, discipline yourself think, okay, how much work can I do if I load myself right to the maximum? How far do I, how far can I work? How hard can I work until I exhaust myself? And then you back off, obviously, because the optimal amount of working, productive engagement, let's say, is that which is sustainable across decades. So you have to, you have to learn that, but you don't learn that without stretching yourself to your limits to begin with. And, you know, if your life isn't everything it could be, and if you're suffering from an excess of meaninglessness, well, it means you're not oriented in the world of chaos and order properly. It's like you could learn to discipline yourself. Look, figure out what figure out what it is that you need to do and that you want to do, and then see how efficient you can get. 
because one of the things that's quite fun is to figure out if you have a task, I always tell my graduate students this, if they're doing an experiment too, if you have a task that you have to do, it's really interesting to spend a few minutes, sometimes hours, depending on how long the task is, see if you can figure out how to do it from, from five to 10 times faster. It means you'll have to rearrange the way you think about it, but you can often do it. And that's how extremely productive people get so hyper-efficient. You know, sometimes it means you have to delegate. It means sometimes it means you have to bring other people aboard. That's delegation as well, I suppose. Um, but there's a lot of preconceptions that you hold about who you are and who the world is that you could dispense with that would make you a way more efficient actor in the world. It's, it's unbelievable the degree to which our sanity depends on a functioning sociological structure. And, and here's why. Well, first of all, you kind of need to know what to do every day. You have to have a routine because you're an animal, you know. And, you know, if you have a dog or a cat, dogs are a really good example of this. Dogs like routine. They like to be walked the number of times a day that they're supposed to be walked. And they get quite sick very rapidly if you don't, if you don't, routinize their their days children are exactly the same way now you can overdo it right but still you know you need to know approximately when you should get up should be approximately the same every day you need to know approximately you're going when you're going to eat you need to know what you're going to eat you need to know who you're going to eat with you need to know where to buy your food it's like 80 percent of your life 70 percent of your life something like that consists of those things that you do every single day that you repeat well, so you need structure, you need predictability, and you need more of it than you think, just to keep you sane. Now, if you're lucky, and, and maybe a bit odd, you can deviate 5% from the norm, or 10% from the norm, or something like that, carefully and cautiously, as long as the rest of you is all well-ordered in a normative manner. You might be able to get away with that, and you might be able to sustain it across time, and people might be able to tolerate you if you do it, or maybe you'll get really lucky and you happen to be creative, but reasonably well put together, and people will actually be happy that there's something idiosyncratic and unique about you. But even under those circumstances, mostly what you want is to have a routine that's disciplined, that's predictable, and bloody well stick to it. You're going to be way healthier and happier and saner if you do that. And then the other thing that you need, because this is one of the things the psychoanalysts got wrong, I think, is that they overestimated the degree to which sanity was a consequence of internal, of being properly structured internally, you know? Because from the psychoanalytic point of view, you're sort of an ego, and that ego is inside you. Of course, it rests on an unconscious structure, but the purpose of psychoanalysis is to sort out that unconscious structure and the ego on top of it, and to make you a fully functioning and autonomous individual. But there's a problem with that, because the reason that you're sane as a fully functional and autonomous human being isn't because you've organized your psyche, even though that's important. The reason that you're sane if, you're a we if you have a well-organized unconscious and ego is because other people can tolerate having you around for reasonably extensive periods of time and will cuff you across the back of the head every time you do something so stupid that people will dislike you permanently if you continue. And so what people are doing to each other all the time, just non-stop, is broadcasting sanity signals back and forth. Right? It's like 
You smile at people if they're, well, if they're not, not only behaving properly, but behaving in a way that you would like to see them continue to behave. You frown at them if they're not, you ignore them if they're not, you shun them, you, you roll your eyes at them, you manifest a disgust face, you don't listen to them, you interrupt them, you won't cooperate with them, you won't compete with them. It's like you're blasting signals at other people about how to regulate their behavior so frequently, well, it just makes up all of your social interaction. That's why we face each other and we have emotional displays on our face and we're looking at each other's eyes. And we know exactly, we know as much as we can about what's going on with each other, given that we don't have immediate access to the contents of their consciousness. And so partly what you're doing with your routine is establishing yourself as a credible, reliable, trustworthy, potentially interesting human being who isn't going to do anything too erratic at any moment. And everyone else is around there tapping you into shape, making sure that that's exactly what you are. And that's how you stay sane. And so what happens to people too, if they don't have a routine and they get isolated is they start to drift. And they drift badly because the world is too complicated for you to keep it organized all by yourself. You just cannot do it. So a lot of our, so we outsource the problem of sanity. And it's very intelligent that we outsource the problem of sanity because sanity is an impossibly complex problem. And so the way that we manage the incredibly complex problem is we have a very large number of brains working simultaneously on the problem all the time. Do you plan your day much or your time generally? Does this lead to higher productivity? Yes, I plan my day obsessively. My calendar is always absolutely full and often weeks in advance. And I plan in the morning, especially when I'm on top of things. And I plan each hour and I probably plan each minute. And yes, it leads to way higher productivity. You know, you, you decide what your goals are going to be. You place them in the calendar. Use the calendar as your friend, eh? Because what you want to do with the calendar is design a day that you want to have, or a day that would be good for you. And a day that would be good for you is one that you're, that you're, uh, you know, when you end the day, you feel that you've moved, moved yourself ahead towards your valued goals, and that you've kept chaos under control. That enables you to sleep soundly and with a good conscience, and to know that the next day is going to be at least not worse than that day. Planning is unbelievably useful. You need to figure out what it is that you're aiming at and why, and then you need to figure out how you're going to break that down over the months and the weeks and the days. But I would approach your calendar like it's your best friend. You think, okay, I'm going to design a week, man, that I really want to have. And that means you can schedule in leisure and all the things that you want to do, which, which you absolutely should do. And it's also quite fun to... Um, Give yourself minimal time to do something complicated because it's quite challenging to see if you can do far more than you thought in far less time. And so that's a fun game. And the other thing you can do is like if you're avoiding something, you could schedule in five minutes of it. So like if you're avoiding looking at some bills because you're afraid of them, you know, your first step might be to schedule in five minutes where you just look at the bill. You don't do anything else. And you know, you might be able to entice yourself into doing that. So but I would say um, learning to plan is unbelievably useful to schedule your time because that's your life, you know. Um, but schedule the life you want. That means you have to schedule your responsibilities often, obviously, because responsibilities are those things that ruin your life if you don't fulfill them.
one knows what it's like to be the bad man. Be the sad man. Behind the right. To be hated. Telling only lies Psychedelic seance. Dr. Dennis McKenna. Wow. Seven months ago. Total shit show. Sunday Trump indictment. Rant with Tony and Gabe. <laughs> Two and a half hours long. Manifest anything you want. Joe Rogan experience. Brian Green, who's that? I don't know. Islam and the possibility of peace. Islam is a peaceful religion. It's, it's a cultural. Well, it's uh, patriarchy, just like 
Catholicism and um, Christianity, organized, institutionalized Christianity. Regus Nanunaki discovery ever found the gods who came to earth, kingdoms of Sumeria. Streamed one month ago. I didn't finish watching this, so we're going to do that right now. Biggest Anunnaki discovery ever found. Of particular interest to us is a scroll fragment which deals with the unusual birth of Noah, and from which we can learn the original Hebrew term for what has been translated as watchers or giants. Not only in the ancient versions, but even by modern scholars, as T.H. Gaster, the Dead Sea Scriptures, and H. Dupont Summer, the Asen writings from Qumran. According to these scholars, column two of the scroll fragment begins thus: Behold, I thought in my heart that the conception was from one of the Watchers, one of the Holy Ones, and that the child really belonged to the giants. And my heart was changed within me because of the child. Then I, Lamech, hastened and went to Bath Enoch, my wife. And I said to her, I want you to take an oath by the Most High, by the Lord Supreme, the King of all the worlds, the ruler of the sons of heaven, that you will tell me in truth whether... But as we examine the Hebrew original, we find that it does not say watchers. It says Nephilim, the very term used in Genesis 6. Ow! The original Hebrew can be found in a bonus PDF under figure 57. Thus do all the ancient texts and all the ancient tales confirm each other. The days before the deluge were the days when the Nephilim were upon the earth, the mighty ones, the people of the rocket ship. In the words of the Sumerian kinglet, the deluge has swept over 120 shars, 120 orbits of 3,600 years each, after the first landing on Earth. This places the deluge at about 13,000 years ago. It is exactly the time when the last ice age ended abruptly, when agriculture began. It was followed 3,600 years later by the new Stone Age, as scholars call it, the Age of Pottery. Then, 3,600 years later, civilization all at once blossomed out in the plain between the rivers, in Schumann. And the whole earth was of one language and of one kind of things, the book of Genesis says. But soon after, the people had established themselves in the land of Shinar, Sumer, and built dwellings of fired clay bricks, they conspired to build a city and a tower, the top of which can reach unto heaven. The Sumerian texts from which this biblical tale was extracted have not yet been found, but we do come across allusions to the event in various Sumerian tales. What emerges is an apparent effort on the part of Ea to enlist mankind in gaining control over the space facilities of the Nephilim. One more incident in the continuing feud between Ea and Enlil, which by then had spilled over to their offspring, as a result of the incident, the Bible tells us the Lord and his unnamed colleagues decided to disperse mankind and confuse its languages, give it diverse and separate civilizations. The deliberations of the gods in the era following the deluge are mentioned in various Sumerian texts, 
the one called the Epic of Etana, states, the great Anunnaki who decree the fate sat exchanging their counsels regarding the earth, they who created the four regions, who set up the settlements, who oversaw the land, were too lofty for mankind. The decision to establish on earth four regions was thus coupled with the decision to install intermediaries, priest kings, between the gods and mankind, so kingship was again lowered to earth from heaven. In an effort which proved futile to end or abate the feuds between the Enlil and Ea families, lots were drawn between the gods to determine who would have dominion over which of the regions. As a result, Asia and Europe were assigned to Enlil and his offspring. To Ea, Africa was given. The first region of civilization was Mesopotamia and the lands bordering upon it. The mountain lands where agriculture and settled life began. The lands that came to be known as Elam, Persia, Assyria, were given to Enlil's son, Ninurta, his rightful heir and foremost warrior. Some Sumerian texts have been found dealing with Minerta's heroic efforts to dam the mountain passes and assure the survival of his human subjects in the harsh times that had followed the deluge, when the layers of mud that had covered the plain between the two rivers dried up sufficiently to permit resettlement. Schumer and the lands that stretched their from westward to the Mediterranean were put under the charge of Enlil's son, Nanar, Singh in Akkadian. A benevolent god, he supervised the reconstruction of Sumer, rebuilding pre-Diluvian cities at their original sites and establishing new cities. Among the latter was his favorite capital, Ur, the birthplace of Abraham. His depictions included the crescent symbol of the moon, which was his celestial counterpart, to Enlil's youngest son, Ishkur, whom the Akkadians called Adad were given the northwestern lands, Asia Minor, and the Mediterranean islands from where civilization, kingship, eventually spread to Greece, like Zeus and later Greece. A dad was depicted riding a bull and holding a forked lightning. Ea too divided the second region, Africa, among his sons. It is known that a son named Nurgul lorded over the southernmost parts of Africa, a son named Jibil, learned from his father the arts of mining and metallurgy, and took over control of the African gold mines. A third son, Ea's favorite, was named by him after the home planet Marduk, and was taught by Ea all knowledge of sciences and astronomy. Circa 2000 BC, Marduk usurped the lordship of Earth and was declared supreme god of Babylon and of the four quarters of the Earth. And as we have seen, a son whose Egyptian name was Ra presided over the core civilization of this region, the civilization of the Nile Valley. The third region, as was discovered only some 50 years ago, was in the subcontinent of India. There, too, a great civilization arose in antiquity, some 1,000 years after the Sumerian one. It is called the Indus Valley Civilization, and its center was a royal city on earth at a site called Harappa. Its people paid homage not to a god, but to a goddess, depicting her in clay figurines as an enticing female, 
adorned with necklaces, her breasts enhanced by straps which crossed her body. Because the script of the Indus civilization is still undeciphered, no one knows what the Harappans called their goddess, or who exactly she was. It is our conclusion, however, that she was the daughter of Sin, whom the Sumerians called Ernini, the strong, sweet-smelling lady, and the Akkadians called Ishtar. Sumerian texts tell of her dominion in a far land named Arata, a land of grain crops and granaries as Harappa was, where too she made flying trips attired as a pilot. It was in need of a spaceport that the fourth region was set aside by the great Anunnaki, a region not for mankind, but for their own exclusive use. All their space facilities from the time they had landed on Earth, the spaceport at Safar, the mission control center at Mipper, were wiped out by the deluge. The low-lying Mesopotamian plain was still too muddy for millennia to enable the rebuilding there of these vital installations. Another place, more elevated yet suitable, secluded but accessible, had to be found for the spaceport and its auxiliary installations. It was to be a sacred zone, a restricted area accessible only by permission. It was called in Sumerian Tilmun, literally, land of the missile. In charge of this post-Diluvian spaceport, they put the son of Sen, and thus a grandson of Enlil, a twin brother of Ernini, Ishtar. His name was Utu, the Bright One, Shamash, an Akkadian. It was he who ably carried out Operation Deluge, the evacuation out of Sapar. He was the chief of the spacemen based on Earth the eagles, and he proudly wore his eagle uniform on formal occasions. The uniform can be seen in figure 59 of the bonus PDF. In the days before the deluge, traditions held a few chosen mortals had been taken aloft from the spaceport, Adapa, who missed his chance, and in Meduronki, whom the gods, Shamash and Adad, transported to the celestial abode to be initiated as priestly secrets, and then returned to Earth. Then there was Yasudra, his life dazed, prolonged, hero of the deluge, who was taken with his wife to live in Tilmun. In post-Diluvian times, Sumerian records stated, Itana, an earlier ruler of Kish, was taken aloft in a shen to the abode of the gods, there to be granted the plant of rejuvenation and birth-giving. But he was too frightened to complete the journey. And the pharaoh Thothmes III claimed in his inscriptions that the god Ra had taken him aloft, given him a tour of the heavens, and returned him to earth. He opened for me the doors of heaven. He spread open for me the portals of its horizon. I flew up to the sky as a divine falcon, that I might see his mysterious ways in heaven. I was made full with the understanding of the gods. In the later memories of mankind, the Shem was cherished as an obelisk, and the rocket ship saluted by eagles gave way to a sacred tree of life. But in Sumer, where the gods were a present reality, as in Egypt when the first pharaohs had reigned, Till moon, the land of the missiles, was a real place. A place where man could find immortality. The tree-slash-rocket ship can be seen in the bonus PDF 
under figure 60. And there, in Sumer, they recorded the tale of a man who, uninvited by the gods, set out to reverse his fate nevertheless. The Sumerian tale, the first known search for immortality, concerns a ruler of long, long ago who asked his divine godfather to let him enter the land of the living. Of this unusual ruler, ancient scribes wrote down epic tales. They said of him that secret things he has seen, what is hidden from man, he found out. He even brought tidings at the time before the deluge. He also took the distant journey, wearisome and under difficulties. He returned, and upon a stone column all his toil he engraved. Of that olden Sumerian tale, less than 200 lines have remained. Yet we know it from its translations into the languages of the peoples who followed the Sumerians in the Near East, Assyrians, Babylonians, Hittites, Hurrians. They all told and retold the tale. And the clay tablets on which these later versions were written down, some intact, some damaged, many fragmented beyond legibility, have enabled many scholars over the better part of a century to piece the tale together. At the core of our knowledge are twelve tablets in the Akkadian language. They were part of the library of Ashurbanipal in Nineveh. They were first reported by George Smith, whose job at the British Museum in London was to sort out, match, and categorize the tens of thousands of tablets and tablet fragments that arrived at the museum from Mesopotamia. One day, his eye caught a fragmented text which appeared to relate the story of the deluge. There was no mistaking the cuneiform texts from Assyria were telling of a king who sought out the hero of the deluge and heard from him a first-person account of the event. With understandable excitement, the museum director sent George Smith to the archaeological site to search for missing fragments. With luck, he found enough of them to be able to reconstruct the text and guess the sequence of the tablets. In 1876, he conclusively showed that this was, as his work was titled, the Chaldean account of the flood. From the language and style, he concluded that it was composed in Babylon circa 2000 BC. George Smith at first read the name of the king who searched for Noah, is Dubur and suggested that he was none other than the biblical hero king, Nimrod. For a time, scholars believed that the tale indeed concerned the very mighty king, and referred to the twelve-tablet text as the Nimrod Epos. More finds and much further research established the Sumerian origin of the tale, and the true reading of the hero's name, Gilgamesh. It has been confirmed from other historical texts, including the Sumerian Kinulis, that he was a ruler of Uruk, the biblical Iraq, circa 2900 BC. The Epic of Gilgamesh, as this ancient literary work is now called, thus takes us back nearly 5,000 years. One must understand the history of Uruk to grasp the epic's dramatic scope. Affirming the biblical statements, the Sumerian historical records also reported that in the aftermath of the deluge, kingship, royal dynasties indeed began at Kish. It then was transferred to Uruk as a result of the ambitions of Ermini Ishtar, who cherished not at all her domain far away from Sumer. 
Uruk initially was only the location of a sacred precinct, where an abode, temple, Baran, the Lord of Heaven, was perched atop a vast ziggurat named Iana, House of Am. On the rare occasion of Am's visits to Earth, he took a liking to Ernini. He bestowed on her the title Inanna, Beloved of Am. The ancient gossip suggested that she was beloved in more than platonic ways, and installed her in the Iana, which otherwise stood unoccupied. But what good was a city without people? A lordship with no one to rule over? Not too far away to the south, on the shores of the Persian Gulf, Ea lived in Eridu in semi-isolation. There he kept track of human affairs, dispensing knowledge and civilization to mankind. Enchanting and perfumed, Inanna paid Ea, a great uncle of hers, a visit. Enamored and drunk, Ea granted her wish to make Uruk the new center of Sumerian civilization, the seat of kingship in lieu of Kish. To carry out her grandiose plan, whose ultimate goal was to break into the inner circle of the twelve great gods, Inanna Ishtar enlisted the support of her brother, Utu Shamash. Whereas in the days before the deluge, the intermarriage between the Nephilim and the daughters of man brought about the wrath of the gods, the practice was no longer frowned upon in the aftermath of the deluge, and so it was that the high priest at the Temple of On was at the time a son of Shamash by a human female. Ishtar and Shamash anointed him as king of Uruk, starting the world's first dynasty of priestly kings. According to the Sumerian king list, he ruled for 324 years. His son, who built Uruk, ruled for 420 years. When Gilgamesh, the fifth ruler of this dynasty, ascended the throne, Uruk was already a thriving Sumerian center, lording over its neighbors and trading with far lands. Gilgamesh can be seen in the bonus PDF under figure 61. An offspring of the great god Shamash on his father's side, Gilgamesh was considered to be two-thirds god, one-third human, by the further fact that his mother was the goddess Ninsun. He was thus accorded the privilege of having his name written with the prefix divine. Gilgamesh's mother, Ninsun, can be seen in the bonus PDF under figure 62. Proud and self-assured, Gilgamesh began as a benevolent and conscientious king, engaged in the customary tasks of raising the city's ramparts or embellishing the temple precinct. But the more knowledge he acquired of the histories of gods and men, the more he became philosophical and restless. In the midst of merriment, his thoughts turned to death. Would he, by virtue of his divine two-thirds, live as long as his demigod forefathers? Or would his one-third prevail and determine for him the lifespan of a mortal human? Before long, he confessed his anxiety to Shamash. In my city, man dies. Oppressed is my heart. Man perishes. Heavy is my heart. Man, the tallest, cannot stretch to heaven. Man, the widest, cannot cover the earth. Will I, too, peer over the wall? He asked Shamash. Will I, too, be fated thus? Evading a direct answer, perhaps not knowing it himself, Shamash attempted to have Gilgamesh accept his fate, whatever it might be, and to enjoy life while he could. When the gods created mankind, 
death for mankind they allotted, life they retained in their own keeping. Therefore, said Shamash, let full be thy valet Gilgamesh, make thou merry by day and night. Of each day make thou a feast of rejoicing, day and night dance thou in play, let thy garments be sparkling fresh, thy head washed, bathed thou in water. Pay heed to the little one that holds thy hand, let thy spice delight in thy bosom, for this is the fate of mankind. But Gilgamesh refused to accept this fate. Was he not two-thirds divine, and only one-third human? Why then should the lesser mortal part, rather than his greater godly element, determine his fate? Roving by daytime, restless at night, Gilgamesh sought to stay young by intruding on newlywed couples, and insisting on having intercourse with the bride ahead of the bridegroom. Then, one night, he saw a vision, which he felt was an omen. He rushed to his mother to tell her what he saw, so that she might interpret the omen for him. My mother, during the night, having become lusty, I wandered about. In the midst of night, omens appeared. A star grew larger and larger in the sky. The handiwork of Anu descended towards me. The handiwork of Anu that descended from the sky fell to earth near him. Gilgamesh continued to relate. I sought to lift it. It was too heavy for me. I sought to shake it. I could neither move nor raise it. While he was attempting to shake loose the object, which must have embedded itself deep into the ground, the populace jostled toward it, the nobles thronged about it. The object's fall to earth was apparently seen by many, for the whole of Uru clan was gathered around it. The heroes, the strong men, then lent Gilgamesh a hand in his efforts to dislodge the object that fell from the skies. The heroes grabbed its lower part, I pulled it up by its forepart. While the object is not fully described in the texts, it was certainly not a shapeless meteor, but a crafted object worthy of being called the handiwork of the great Anu himself. The ancient reader apparently required no elaboration, having been familiar with the term handiwork of Anu, or with its depiction, as possibly the one shown on an ancient cylinder seal, which can be viewed in the bonus PDF under figure 63. The Gilgamesh text describes the lower part, which was grabbed by the heroes, by a term that may be translated leg. It had, however, other pronounced parts, and could even be entered, as becomes clear from the further description by Gilgamesh of the night's events. I pressed strongly its upper part. I could neither remove its covering nor raise its ascender. With a destroying fire, its top, I then broke off and moved into its depths. Its movable, that which pulls forward, I lifted and brought it to thee. Gilgamesh was certain that the appearance of the object was an omen from the gods concerning his fate, but his mother, the goddess Ninsun, had to disappoint him. That which descended like a star from heaven, she said, foretells the arrival of a stout comrade who rescues. A friend is come to thee. He is the mightiest in the land. He will never forsake thee. This is the meaning of thy vision. She knew what she was talking about. 
for unbeknown to Gilgamesh, in response to pleas from the people of Uruk that something be done to divert the restless Gilgamesh, the gods arranged for a wild man to come to Uruk and engage Gilgamesh in wrestling matches. He was called Enkidu, a creature of Enki, a kind of Stone Age man who had been living in the wilderness among the animals, and as one of them, the milk of wild creatures he was wont to suck. He was depicted naked, bearded with shaggy hair, often shown in the company of his animal friends. An image of the wild man can be found in the bonus PDF under CP64. To tame him, the nobles of Uruk assigned a harlot, Enkidu, until then, knowing only the company of animals, regained his human element as he made love to the woman over and over again. Then she brought Enkidu to a camp outside town, where he was coached in the speech and manners of Uruk, and in the habits of Gilgamesh, restrained Gilgamesh, be a match for him, the nobles told Enkidu. The first encounter took place at night, as Gilgamesh left his palace and started to roam the streets, looking for sexual adventures. Enkidu met him in the street, barring his way. They grappled each other, holding fast like bulls. Walls shook, doorposts were shattered as the two wrestled. At last, Gilgamesh bent the knee. The match was over. He lost to the stranger. His fury abated. Gilgamesh turned away. Just then, Enkidu addressed him, and Gilgamesh recalled his mother's words. Here, then, was his new stout friend. They kissed each other and formed a friendship. As the two became inseparable friends, Gilgamesh began to reveal to Enkidu his fear of a mortal state. On hearing this, the eyes of Enkidu filled with tears. Ill was his heart. Bitterly, he sighed. Then he told Gilgamesh that there is a way to outsmart his fate, to force his way into the secret abode of the gods. There, if Shamash and Adad would stand by him, the gods would accord him the divine status to which he was entitled. The abode this is of the pretty gods, amazing. We're going to pull up. hearing <clears throat> or grasped by the king directed itself. Oh. The reason this is so fascinating is because we've never heard the story before about... You know, what happened after the floods? How was, uh, how did they, how were the cities rebuilt? Uh, you know, you know, they said that how the, the so-called gods uh, rebuilt those cities and created some more as well. And uh, what else? And um, yeah, after it was rebuilt after the flood, and uh, this connection between Gilgamesh, which is probably the oldest story in in the world, <coughs> and um, she's talking about how the the kingdoms of Sumeria. You know, like, I was wondering about, okay, what about China? That's, uh, <clears throat> maybe it was a woman. But if you just look at the first story, the stories of 
how China, I mean, began. Uh, I believe, yeah, you know, from my past research that there's always a story of like a god or goddess. And, um, yeah, they have the eight immortal story, Bashien. In short, became self-propelled. One way or another, the pharaoh managed to cross the lake and be on his way toward the two that bring closer the heavens. He descends into the boat like Ra on the shores of the winding watercourse. The king rows in the Hanbu boat. He takes the helm toward the plain of the two that bring closer the heavens in the land beginning from the Lake of Reeds. The Lake of Reeds was situated at the eastern end of the domain of Horus. Beyond lay the territories of his adversary set, the lands of Asia. As would be expected on such a sensitive boundary, the king discovers that the lake's eastern shore is patrolled by four crossing guards, the wearers of side locks. The way these guards wore their hair was truly their most conspicuous feature. Black as coal, it was arranged in curls on their foreheads, at their temples, and at the back of their heads, with braids in the center of their heads. Combining diplomacy with firmness, the king again proclaimed his divine origins, claiming he was summoned by my father Ra. One pharaoh is reported to have used threats. Delay my crossing, and I will pluck out your locks as lotus flowers are plucked in the lotus pond. Another had some of the gods come to his assistance. One way or another, the pharaoh managed to proceed. The king has now left the lands of Horus, the eastward place which he seeks to reach, though under the aegis of Ra, is in the region of Seth. His goal is a mountainous area, the mountains of the east as can be seen in the bonus PDF under figure 14. His course I'd is like set to see this bonus PDF. Two mountains, the two mountains which stand in awe of Set. But first, he has to traverse an arid and barren area, a kind of no-gods land between the domains of Horus and Set. Just as the pace and urgency of the utterances increase, where the king is getting closer to the hidden place, where the doors of heaven are located, he is challenged again by guards. Where goest thou? They demand to know. The king's sponsors answer for him. The king goes to heaven to possess life and joy, that the king may see his father, that the king may see Ra. Nowadays, we take spaceflight for granted. We can read of plans for permanently orbiting space settlements without blinking an eye. The development of a reusable space shuttle is viewed not with wonderment, but with appreciation of its cost-saving potentialities. All this, of course, because we have seen with our own eyes, in print and on television, astronauts fly in space, and unmanned craft land on other planets. We accept space travel and interplanetary contacts because we have heard with our own ears a mortal named Neil Armstrong, commander of the Apollo 11 spacecraft, report on his radio for all the world to hear the first landing by man on another celestial body, the moon. Houston, Tranquility Base here, the Eagle has landed. Eagle was not only the code name for the lunar module, 
but the epithet by which the Apollo 11 spacecraft was called, and a proud nickname by which the three astronauts identified themselves. The Falcon 2 has soared into space and landed on the moon. In the immense National Air and Space Museum of the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, one can see and touch the actual spacecraft that were flown or that were used as backup vehicles in the American space program, and a special section where the moon landings have been simulated with the aid of the original equipment. The visitor can still hear a recorded message from the surface of the moon. Okay, Houston, the Falcon is on the plane at Hadley. Whereupon the manned spacecraft center at Houston announced to the world. That was a jubilant Dave Scott reporting Apollo 15 on the plane at Hadley. Up to a few decades ago, the notion that a common mortal can put on some special clothes and strap himself in the front part of a long object, then zoom off the face of Earth, seemed preposterous, or worse. A century or two ago, such a notion would not have even come about, for there was nothing in human experience or knowledge to trigger such fantasies. Yet, as we have just described, the Egyptians, 5,000 years ago, could readily visualize all this happening to their pharaoh. He would journey to a launch site east of Egypt. He would enter a subterranean complex of tunnels and chambers. He would safely pass by the installation's atomic plant and radiation chamber. He would don the suit and gear of an astronaut, enter the cabin of an ascender, and sit strapped between two gods. And then, as the double doors would open, and the dawn skies would be revealed, the jet engines would ignite, and the ascender would turn into the celestial ladder, by which the pharaoh will reach the abode of the gods on their planet of millions of years. On what TV screens have the Egyptians seen such things happen, that they so firmly believed that all this was really possible? In the absence of television in their homes, the only alternative would have been to either go to the spaceport and watch the rocket ships come and go, or visit a Smithsonian and see the craft on display, accompanied by a knowing guide or viewing flight simulations. The evidence suggests that the ancient Egyptians had indeed done that. They had seen the launch site, and the hardware, and the astronauts with their own eyes. But the astronauts were not Earthlings going elsewhere. They were rather astronauts from elsewhere who had come to planet Earth. Greatly enamored with art, the ancient Egyptians depicted in their tombs what they had seen and experienced in their lifetimes. The architecturally detailed drawings of the subterranean corridors and chambers of the Duat come from the tomb of Seti I. An even more startling depiction has been found in the tomb of Hugh, who was viceroy in Nubia and in the Sinai Peninsula during the reign of the renowned Pharaoh Tutankhamun. Decorated with scenes of people, places, and objects from the two domains of which he was viceroy, his tomb preserved to this very day a depiction in vivid colors of a rocket ship. Its shaft is contained in an underground silo. Its upper stage with the command module is above ground. The shaft is subdivided like a multi-stage rocket. Inside its lower part, two persons attend to hoses and levers. There is a row of circular dials above them. The silo cutaway shows 
that it is surrounded by tubular cells for heat exchange or some other energy-related function. Above ground, the hemispherical base of the upper stage is clearly depicted in the color painting as scorched, as though from a re-entry into Earth's atmosphere. The command module, large enough to hold three to four persons, is conical in shape, and there are vertical peepholes all around its bottom. The cabin is surrounded by worshippers in the landscape of date palm trees and giraffes. This can be seen in the bonus PDF under figure 27. The underground chamber is decorated with leopard skins, and this provides a direct link with certain phases in the pharaoh's journey to immortality. The leopard skin was the distinctive garb symbolically worn by the Shem priest as he performed the opening of the mouth ceremony. It was the distinctive garb symbolically worn by the gods who towed the pharaoh through the secret path of the hidden place of the Duat, a symbolism repeated to stress the affinity between the pharaoh's journey and the rocket ship in the underground silo. As the pyramid texts make clear, the pharaoh, in his translation into an eternal afterlife, embarked on a journey simulating the gods. Ra and Seth, Osiris and Horus, and other gods had ascended to the heavens in this manner. But the Egyptians also believed it was by the same celestial boat that the great gods had come down to earth in the first place. At the city of On Heliopolis, Egypt's oldest center of worship, the god Ptah built a special structure, a Smithsonian institution, if you will, wherein an actual space capsule could be viewed and revered by the people of Egypt. The secret object, the Ben-Ben, was enshrined in the Het-Ben-Ben, the temple of the Ben-Ben. We know from the hieroglyphic depiction of the place's name that the structure looked like a massive launch tower, from within which a pointed rocket was poised skyward, as seen in figure 28 in the bonus PDF. The Ben-Ben was, according to the ancient Egyptians, a solid object that had actually come to Earth from the celestial disk. It was the celestial chamber in which the great god Ra himself had landed on Earth. The term Ben, literally, that which flowed out, conveying the combined meanings of to shine and to shoot up in the sky. An inscription on the stela of the pharaoh Pianchi said thus, the King Pianchi mounted the stairs toward the large window in order to view the god Ra within the Ben-Ben. The king personally, standing up and being all alone, pushed apart the bolt and opened the two door leaves. Then he saw his father, Ra, in the splendid sanctuary of Het Ben-Ben. He saw the Maad, Ra's barge, and he saw Sektet, the barge of the Aten. The shrine, we know from the ancient texts, was guarded and serviced by two groups of gods. There were those who are outside of the Het Ben-Ben, but were allowed into the shrine's most sacred parts, for it was their task to receive the offerings from the pilgrims and bring them into the temple. The others were primarily guardians, not only of the Ben-Ben itself, but of all the secret things of Ra which are in the Het Ben-Ben. Much as tourists nowadays flock to the Smithsonian to view, admire, and even touch the actual vehicles flown in space, so did the devout Egyptians make pilgrimages to Heliopolis. 
to revere and pray to the Benven, probably with a religious fervor akin to that of the faithful Muslims who make pilgrimages to Mecca, there to pray at the Kaaba, a black stone believed to be a replica of God's celestial chamber. At the shrine there was a fountain, or well, whose waters acquired a reputation for their healing powers, especially in matters of virility and fertility. The term Ben, and its hieroglyphic depiction in time, indeed acquired the connotations virility and reproduction, and could well have been the source of the meaning male offspring that Ben has in Hebrew. In addition to virility and reproduction, the shrine also acquired the attributes of rejuvenation. This, in turn, gave rise to the legend of the Ben-Bird, which the Greeks, who had visited Egypt, called the Phoenix. As these legends had it, the Phoenix was an eagle, with plumage partly red and partly golden. Once every five hundred years, as it was about to die, it went to Heliopolis, and in some manner rose again from the ashes of itself or of its father. Heliopolis and its healing waters remained venerated until early Christian times. Local traditions claim that when Joseph and Mary escaped to Egypt with the child the Jesus, Benbirds. they rested by the shrine's well. <coughs> the shrine of Heliopolis, Egyptian okay. histories tell, McCliffs, was destroyed just, uh, several times rested the Benbirds. by tributes of rejuvenation. This, in turn, gave rise to the legend of the Ben-Bird, which the Greeks, who had visited Egypt, called the Phoenix. As these legends had it, the Phoenix was an eagle, with plumage partly red and partly gold. Once every five hundred years, as it was about to die, it <clears throat> went to Heliopolis. And in some manner rose again from the ashes of itself, or of its father. Heliopolis and its healing waters remained venerated until early Christian times. Local traditions claim that when Joseph and Mary escaped to Egypt with the child Jesus, they rested by the shrine's well. The shrine at Heliopolis, oh. Egyptian history <clears throat> tells, escaped Egypt. was destroyed several times by enemy invaders. Nothing remains of it nowadays. The Ben-Ben is also gone. Tributes of rejuvenation. This, in turn, gave rise to the legend of the Ben-Bird, which the Greeks, who had visited Egypt, called the phoenix. As these legends had it, the phoenix was an eagle, with plumage partly red and partly golden. Once every five hundred years, as it was about to die, it went to Heliopolis, and in some manner rose again from the ashes of itself, or of its father. Heliopolis and its healing waters remained venerated until early Christian times. Local traditions claim that when Joseph and Mary escaped to Egypt with the child Jesus, they rested by the shrine's well. The shrine at Heliopolis, Egyptian histories tell, okay, with the child was Je destroyed several times by enemy invaders. 
Nothing Vin remains Bird's. of it nowadays. The Ven Ben is also gone. Bird is the, uh, but it was depicted on Egyptian Phoenix. monuments as a conical chamber within which a god could be seen. Archaeologists have, in fact, found a stuff. scale model of the Benben, showing a god at its open hatch door in a gesture of welcome. The true shape of the celestial chamber was probably 